Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back to the Corner Kick podcast semi-final edition, Euro 2020 or 2020's semi-final edition. We have two really scintillating games to get to and as well as diving into how we got here, we're going to discuss, you know, some big storylines coming out of the knockout phases of Euro 2020, talking some French drama, talking some is this the end of the Belgian golden generation? But before we do that, I am joined by a man who did not head his country 2-0 up against the Ukraine. It is Nathan Strauss. Ooh, we're introducing me first today. I, I like it. No, I did not head my country up 2-0, uh, sadly. I was actually beaten in the air in my header, but nonetheless. <laughs> I'm also joined by a man who is not Swiss and did not take a disgusting penalty against the Spanish. It is Caleb Rhodes. You know, I feel like if we hadn't gotten Cypriot citizenship, like the Swiss were probably next on the list for me. So I, I think without context, that might be very confusing to a lot of people, but I don't know if we have the time to explain it. Long <laughs> story just... short, I am I'm a proud citizen of the great island nation of Cyprus. Yeah, Caleb is no, is he a spy? Is he not a spy? Is he just a Cypriot tourist? We may never know. But lads, let's get into talking about these two semifinals. We have Italy-Spain, which is, fun fact, the most played fixture in the European Championships to date. And we have England versus Denmark. Obviously, if you want to hear a more extensive discussion on the England national team, all you need to do is listen to the episode that came out right before this, where I broke everything down with the composer of our Corner Kick theme song, uh, been massive England fan, Billy Hattel. So definitely go check that out uh, if you want to hear it from an England fan perspective. But let's begin with, with Italy, Spain. Caleb, how did we get here to a point where we're going to be witnessing this game for the... I think it is the fourth straight Euros in a big knockout context. We've obviously seen these teams play in finals, in rounds of 16. Uh, this, however, feels a little bit different, I think, to, to the Italy-Spain games of the past. Yeah, I mean, I think it's safe to say that Italy have been the form team of this tournament. They're the only team to have a perfect record, five wins in five games, and I think in terms of their path to get here, they beat Austria in the round of 16 in extra time off of a, but has to be said, wonderful goal from Chiesa, who I think is really growing into a top, top player at this tournament. And then the, the statement victory was when Italy beat Belgium in the last round. So that's how we've got here. And I think this Italian team, I mean, Nick, you you called this from the outset, and then I kind of joined the bandwagon. And then somewhere around the second or third game of the group stages, Nathan joined it. But they are proving very legit. And I think the one big question that we have to ask is obviously perhaps the breakout player on the team, honestly, has been Spinazzola, who's in his like late 20s but hasn't played that much, has come into this Italy team and has been truly terrific in that left-back role, but 
really unfortunately tore his Achilles tendon in that game against Belgium. And now they're going to have to bring in Emerson, who played a grand total of how many Premier League games this year? Like five. None. Two. He 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 played two games. So he is the backup, backup left back at Chelsea. He did and score the, in the Champions League, though, right? Am I just making that up? Uh, I think it, against that Letty, right? He did. He scored like the the goal to like put the tie away. Perhaps, but point being, this guy, the fact that he is the backup left back for Italy, I think says a lot. And I think, given how good Spinazzola has been this tournament, it's a massive, massive loss. But that's how we've got here. That's where the Italy team's at. What are you guys thinking about this team or feeling right now? I think this team goes to the final. And not only because, like you said, Caleb, I'm riding high on (laughs) predicting this team uh, to do great things at this tournament. Um, I was, you know, riding the gondola of success, as we said before on this show, uh, far before many people were. It's been a lot of different gondolas, let's be clear. (laughs) <laughs> I think um, I'm riding a Lam- the Lamborghini tractor. Oh, yeah. Did you know that, Nathan? Does Lamborghini make a tractor? That Lamborghini, make, they make tractors. That yeah. checks out. That's very Italian of them. So I'm riding the Lamborghini tractor all the way into Rome to parade around the, uh, and celebrate the glories of Roberto Mancini's Italy. But yeah, I think this team, nah, I think the game against Austria that you brought up, Caleb, was really instructive to me because they totally breeze through the group stage uh playing some outrageous soccer some really aesthetically beautiful easy on the eye um midfield dominance attacking prowess it was all on display in the group stage and then they come into that game against austria which i think even we kind of labeled as a bit of a write-off and austria really kind of sucker punched them and gave them i think a, a bloody nose a little bit and it was Italy. It was the first time we had to see this Italy team really dig deep and find a way to get a result when they weren't playing at their absolute best. And then subsequently, after they were able to kind of ride that hurdle, they produced an immaculate performance against Belgium. And, you know, obviously Belgium were playing with Kevin De Bruyne with an ankle ligament tear, no Eden Hazard, uh, Jeremy Doku was kind of the surprise elements of that game. I, I do think this Italy team is just the, mo- the most, and we'll get on to England. I think they are the most fluid team at this tournament. I think England are perhaps the most complete team. I do think Italy are the most fluid team. I don't think the drop between Spinazzola and Emerson is going to be as crazy as we maybe think. And that's purely because I think the roles, the tactical roles in this Italy team are so well-defined. Like Emerson is going to be playing much of the same deal where he just creates an overload on that left-hand side with Insigne. Having Insigne alongside him helped Spinazzola a lot. And obviously we saw that with, with the goal that he scored against Belgium, being able to free up that space for himself. So I do think that this Italy team gets by Spain. I think we'll get on to Spain. I'm not as convinced about them. And I haven't been as convinced about them in this tournament yet. I just think that this is Italy's time. They're riding high. You can see like the mood in their camp is so, it, it, you know, unlike Italy teams of the past, this is a fun Italy. This is uh, Italy riding high on, you know, good vibes and Armani Blazers. And I think they're going to take it to the final. Yeah, I think, I would say that I think Italy are going to go through, but I do worry a little bit about the fact that I think both Italy 
and Spain just looked very fatigued their last time out, uh, or at least more fatigued than we've seen them throughout this tournament. And I do think there was that great stat uh, that Taylor Twelman posted that Nick you pointed out about how the four teams that are in the quarter or that are in the semifinals all had their games at home in the group stage. And I think that the travel or the lack of travel has given these teams a leg up. I think the quarterfinal round was slightly cagier than the round of 16. And I think a lot of that can be attributed to fatigue. Um, but I do think Italy goes through. I think Spain are going to have a lot of the ball, um, but that, that doesn't really phase Italy, which is nice. So I think the matchup actually favors the, the front three of Chiesa, Immobile, and Insigne um, on the break. And then, of course, whoever Italy decide to bring on later on. And I just doubt that Spain has the ability to finish against this Italy back four, regardless of whether Emerson starts at left or right back. <laughs> Spain have also just not proven that they can get the job done. They just don't have the they just don't have the ability to finish. You know, they create great chances, but yep. I think, you know, the Italy back four is more solid than the Swiss back three or the Croatia back four. And so I think that the that Italy have the advantage going forward as well as defending. And I think we see Italy make a final for the first time since 2012. Caleb, or Nathan makes an interesting point about the fact that Spain might have more of the ball. And that could be true. But I would say that Italy might have a leg up just in terms of the midfield three than what Lucio Enrique would be able to put out with the Spanish midfield. Yeah, I was, I was actually in comments on that. Like, I'm not sure that that's necessarily true. I, I do think the fatigue point cannot be overstated though Spain had to play 120 minutes against Croatia in what has to be one of the craziest games of the tournament and we could talk about how like Croatia Spain and France Switzerland was probably like the wildest like four hours of soccer in the past I don't even know how long um but they had to play 120 minutes against Croatia they had to go to penalties against Switzerland and so I think they're really tired and I think their finishing has proven to be an issue and I think on the midfield, I think it's really interesting seeing how Italy will play against another 4-3-3 and considering who has the leg up in the likely midfield of, you know, Verratti, Jorginho, who has to be, I think, in the conversation for player of the tournament right now, which is not a sentence I thought I would be saying at the outset, um, and Barella versus Pedri, who somehow continues to run the amount of minutes that 18-year-old has played in the past year is astonishing and, and somewhat troubling. Um, but hey, he said he would shave his head if they win the tournament, so he's clearly willing to run a little bit more. Um, Busquets and Koke. And I think that's actually one of the most compelling midfield battles we can see. And I think it will be pretty even in terms of possession, um, which might change the game a little bit because then it comes slightly down to like who's better on the counter. Because I think in Belgium, Italy we saw that Italy really dominated possession. Um, and so it was Belgium going on the counter. I, I do think Italy have the edge because they're just in better form. But I think this Spain team has a bit of just like luck is going their way slightly, despite the fact that they constantly get in their own way. And I think I'm not totally sure what to expect out of them. And I don't think Italy will know totally what to expect out of them either. I don't know if that makes sense. But I think they're a bit of an unknown quandary at this point uh, in the tournament which is odd to say, considering we're at the semifinals. Do you think there's something to be said about we still don't really know what... <laughs> it's crazy because Spain have won... They've won back-to-back -back games while scoring five goals. 
you know, against Slovakia and Croatia. And then they had, I think, a bit of a stumble against the Swiss, or it just looked like they switched off for a little bit in that game. And there's an element of we know what the best Italian 11 is. Do you think there's an element of concern that we're in the semifinal of a major tournament and we still don't really know what Lucho's best Spain team really looks like on paper? Yeah, I mean, that has to be a concern, right? And I think he seems pretty set on this defense. I think he'll go with the Laporte and Pau Torres, two left-footed center back pairing again. He seems happier with Azpilicueta at right back than Marcus Llorente. But I think Llorente, you know, if Spain is trailing or is struggling to break Italy down, will definitely make an appearance. But I think the two spots that really seem up for grabs because Enrique loves Morata like like no one else, perhaps, um, is those wing spots. Like, I don't think Sarabia, Torres, Olmo, or Yartzabal, et cetera, or Gerard Moreno, for that matter, have proven necessarily that they deserve that starting role. Um, and I don't really know who's who's going to start. I don't know if you guys have any ideas about who he's going to pick um, for those positions. Well, Sarabia is apparently carrying a bit of an injury, so he might be a, a question. So I think we might see the return of Danny Olmo to the starting mm-hmm. 11. And then I, I think Ferran Torres probably has been their most dynamic player on the right-hand side. Yeah, because I think he's more likely to bring on Moreno for Morata like 60 or 70 minutes mm-hmm. into the game. And it wouldn't surprise me if he went with two um, two players who can come in a little bit more uh, like Olmo or Torres. I still am not exactly sure what Ferran Torres' best position is. Like, is it as a striker? Mm. Like he played for City this year. Is it as like a true winger? Um, is it as like a, an inverted winger? Like, I'm not really sure. Uh, I think there is a bit of a selection dilemma there, especially um, considering how solid that midfield three has been. I saw a stat that Pedri has actually covered more ground than any other player uh, this tournament. I think 65 kilometers now over five games. So the midfield three and the back four are, are pretty much locked down at this point. It's really It really is just those two wing positions that are up for grabs so should we give our should we give our final predictions sure nathan how do you see this game italy is going to win um on penalties after a 1-1 draw Ooh, i think italy is going to win outright 90 minutes it's going to be 2-1 yeah i think the the belgium game was a good indication of how this one might go which is that italy get the job done in regular time i'm also going 2-1 um and i think spain probably get like a consolation goal towards the end but it's not enough i think the interesting thing about the belgium game caleb is that even though italy played some uh, amazing football for about 70 minutes the last 20 minutes was like some pure just classic catenaccio housery and like it's kind of good it was good for me to see that like there was at least still some like classic Italiness to this Azzurri team. So I think if if Spain do get themselves in a hole around, you know, the 75th minute, I think we're going to see, you know, <laughs> the, like Immobile uh, diving to the ground and, um, you know, Verratti picking up his customary aggressive yellow card and, mm. and things like that. So I, I definitely think, I, I don't know if that, that is a, an extra gear that Spain can reach, you know, the extra gear of Azzurri. But, um, yeah, we shall see. I think that's definitely an element to keep your eye on with this Italy team. Anyways, let's move on over to the next semifinal. It is England 
after a rousing 4-0 demolition of Ukraine, which obviously, like I said, we discussed on our previous podcast. Do check that out. It's a very good listen. Um, but they are playing, I would say, you know, the the neutral favorite, the team of destiny in this tournament. It is the Danes in Denmark who put in, I would say, a pretty impressive performance to beat a a rugged Czech Republic outfit in, you know, <laughs> the historical home of soccer, Baku, <laughs> Azerbaijan. <laughs> it's just hilarious. There was no one there. There was no one there. It was a quarterfinal of a major tournament. Like no one gave a crap. I was. I felt so bad. Baku aside, this is a. There's so many storylines, jettisoning, jettisoning all about in this game. You know, there's the Christian Eriksen factor. There's the fact that this is probably the best England have looked in a very, very long time coming off one of, I think, probably Gareth Southgate's two most statement wins as England manager. As much as I want to sort of be contrarian and just say like, oh, um, you know, I think Denmark are going to go through. They are the team of destiny and whatnot. England just looked so good against Ukraine in a game that I thought had a little bit of upset potential. Like, I thought if Ukraine could score first, they could potentially, you know, dull the game to a win. But Harry Kane has most certainly arrived, uh, as you predicted in our last pod. And even Jordan Henderson coming off the bench to score, I think, is a huge boost. And right now, the England 4-2-3-1 just looks like it's firing on all cylinders. Uh, Luke Shaw looks like the best left back in the world in his current form. And even bringing in a player like Jaden Sancho, who didn't get on the score sheet himself, but I thought added a different dimension to the team. Um, it's all positive. And I think this whoever wins this game, uh, you know, there's a good storyline because obviously England making the final of a major tournament would be a huge deal. And Denmark are the utmost of Cinderella stories. Um, but I just don't see England losing this game. Uh, I think England win by a final score of three to one. I hate to say it, but England have proven me wrong. They have really grown into this tournament. They have yet to concede a goal. They manhandled Ukraine. They're going to make the final. I, I, Denmark, you know, as you said, had the good storyline, but they also had, I think, the easiest route of anyone to this point in the tournament after their convincing win over Wales and then you know, I think their workmanlike victory over the Czech Republic. Honestly, I think Denmark will be able to hold their heads high regardless of the results here. But England are just in finally in full flow. I think this team had too much attacking talent to not be scoring goals. And now we're seeing that they can score goals. I mean, obviously a little bit of help from the Ukrainian center backs who were nowhere for the entirety of the second half and couldn't get close to the ball. And it was just free header after free header after free header after free header. But I think you could just tell that Ukraine were so gassed from their game against Sweden. And when I say gassed, I'm not talking about Gazprom. I'm talking about these guys were just dead on their feet. And once again, I, I don't think, I think Ukraine, despite the result, acquitted themselves like decently. I think they, yeah, you know, you're a fan of the Ukraine. Yeah. I enjoyed watching them. They, they competed far above their expectations. I think Shevchenko did an admirable job. I think it's fine. But England, they just have too many options. And I think 
we've seen this like slow growth through the team where Southgate has like slowly started to figure out which people should be in which places. I think we've seen the appearance of Sancho at the expense of minutes for players like Phil Foden, um, who has kind of, you know, been put aside. This I, I just hope this game doesn't get gory. I don't think it will. And here's why. I think an interesting thing about this England team is that they have run the least out of any team at this tournament. Their pressing statistics are way down. Their actual, like, running around and like their running stats are also way down like their physical their physical like statistics gareth southgate just has this team defending so organized and when they're not defending and when they're on the ball they don't really push anything they don't they don't feel the need to really exert anything they carve out opportunities when the opportunities are there like exemplified by the the sterling pass uh, in the fourth minute, like he just kind of found himself an opening and was able to play that. Ukraine hadn't even touched the ball yet. So I think this team, the reason why they've grown into the tournament and the reason why everyone is sort of playing themselves into form is because there's Southgate has managed them so effectively to the point where now players like Harry Kane, Sterling, Mason Mount, Shaw, who've all played a, a ton of minutes for their respective club teams, they're now starting to like be re-energized and get more get more gas in the tank in order to really put on amazing performances in the final stretch of this tournament. I think you have to say, and I think we've all been critical of, of Southgate um, throughout you know, our time on this, on this show and throughout his time as England manager, I think he has managed this tournament, and particularly, as you were saying, Caleb, with the amount of talent on, on offer for the England national team, perfectly. I think this has been a perfect managerial performance up to this point from Gareth Southgate. And I think Denmark are an interesting proposition because they're so well drilled, so well organized in that 3-4-3. They have talent like Domsgaard, um, like Dolberg, who are playing themselves into form coming into this game. And Pierre-Emil Hoiberg, I think, has been one of the more underrated players at this tournament to the point where his uh, passing and creation stats and his like expected assists are up there with Kevin De Bruyne at this tournament. So I think he's definitely someone who is going to, if he continues to perform in the way that he's been doing for Denmark, it's going to be a real problem for England. I don't think they've come up against a midfielder quite like him yet. Uh, so, you know, we'll see what happens. Nathan, What what is your take on how this game is going to go? Man, I just think I wouldn't rule out Denmark getting the first goal. I think that they have this relentless press that they can use at the start of games to stifle teams. But I do just think that England are so good in the air. I just think they'll win out no matter what. And they England can score from any set piece. England can score on the counterattack. And now that England have figured out how to find Harry Kane, they can even start having cracks from distance as well. I'm sort of curious if Sancho gets the start again. I would imagine he does. I really just think that it's not out of the question that Denmark get a goal or two. Um, but I almost think that if, if Denmark can sort of weather the storm um, without going to that super high intensity press in the first half, they might have a better chance of wearing down England. But again, I just think that playing in front of what should be ostensibly a home crowd, I don't see any way that this England team loses. This is like worth making a point too in terms of like wearing England down. England have traveled 
the least miles in this tournament by far. Like we talked about fatigue in the other game, but England have no fatigue at all. They'll be playing at home again at Wembley. This is the best opportunity England has to make a final international tournament. And they're going to do it in part because just the way the tournament's worked out, they've been able to conserve their energy like no other team remaining. And I think that's a huge, huge advantage. And just admittedly, they're going to have to expend less energy against Denmark, who are clearly, you know, at least on paper, the, the worst team, um, despite how they've performed. Like, we just have to be, like, honest here. Um, and so I think that is, like, a huge factor after a season in which all these players are completely destroyed and worn down and will only continue to be in the coming months. So England massive advantage structurally in terms of how this tournament has happened yeah no i I completely agree i think england do get the job done i think it is going to be a very compelling game i think it's going to be really entertaining i think there are periods where it could get a little choppy i think denmark the the benefit for them is that they have players like christensen kier hoiberg as we've already stated who can be a little bit more physical, who are a little bit bigger, a little bit tougher, can get into Harry Kane a little bit more, can contest with Harry Maguire on set pieces. So I think that's kind of an interesting component. And I think Denmark, to their credit, they're also kind of the master of the set piece, as we saw from the uh, the kind of like moving screens that they were setting in that corner in order for Delaney to get open and, uh, and head them in front against the Czech Republic. So It'll be interesting if it does come down to something like that, like a battle of the set pieces. But I think, like Nathan said, I think the English just have way too much. And I think Southgate has managed the squad to now, they're just starting to get a little bit of a second wind coming into the latter stage of this tournament and are going are gonna to be a real proposition if they meet in Italy or Spain in the final. Yeah. Should we highlight Mila at least? Just oh, absolutely. I was just, about to, I was just about to do that. But okay, take it away. No, no, you got it. You got it. This guy... First of all, Atalanta as a club, like, have just been probably, like, looking at their their data screens or whatever and just seeing, like, the valuations of their players just skyrocket throughout this tournament. And it is true for um, a lot of of Atalanta players, but certainly for Joachim Mela of Denmark, who not only uh, has been an electric player on the real-life pitch in this tournament, you know, you look no further than that spectacular outside-of-the-foot pass that he laid off for Kasper Dolberg in their last game, but he's also been a fantasy MVP for my team, uh, so I appreciate him in that <laughs> respect. But Nathan, this if there's, I think this has been like the tournament for wingbacks, you know, you think about Gosen's incredible performance in the group stage. We've already discussed Spinazzola, Luke Shaw, obviously. But Joachim Mela has as good a claim as any of them to be in the contention for best fullback of the Yeah, tournament. so 16 of 24 teams at Euro 2020 have used a, a formation that um, includes wingbacks at least once. Uh, that means 10 of 16 of the teams in the round of 16 and 5 of 8 teams in the quarterfinals have as well, which is obviously far more than you would expect. But I think as teams or managers are finding out, um, it enables players who might not have even been in a starting 11 with a back four um, play to their strengths. And for example, Denmark are a team that happen to have three center backs that are, I would say, above average 
for the strength of their squad on the whole. And it allows players like Vestigard, Kier, and Christensen, um, as the AC Milan uh, commentator would, would say, it allows all three of them to get into the team at once. And players like Jens Strieger Larsen, who's obviously like, I think he's in his 30s now. Uh, I think, yeah, he's actually just turned 30. Uh, it allows players like Strieger Larsen and Joachim Myla to get into this team and have a focus of going forward. And when you're playing with a formation that also includes basically two strikers in, in Braithwaite and Dolberg, even though it's it's listed as a 3-4-2-1, it's really more like a 3-4-1-2. It just provides more opportunities to drag defenders around, create space for these players on the outside. And Myla has the technique to pull off these awesome passes like his assist for Dolberg the other day. So all in all, huge fan of the sort of tactical innovation that we've seen tournament-wide, um, but also... I think you have to appreciate the skill of players like Myla, of players like Gosens, of players like Stefan Zuber, who Nick, as you mentioned, uh, yeah. leads the the tournament in assists. Yeah, and Myla only started playing in a top five league in January. He transferred from Genk in the Belgian league to Atalanta in this past transfer window. That is how meteoric his rise has been. And I don't really know, like, honestly, I'm just imagining now like if Manchi and like the people at Atalanta came together, they would be able to build the most cost-effective <laughs> team ever. <laughs> uh, one could only imagine. But yeah, certainly a tournament to make Antonio Conte shed a tear. So let's move on from the semifinal matchups and let's discuss, you know, some of the, the bigger storylines uh, of the knockout stages, particularly the teams who have, I think, kind of, maybe failed to impress or in the case of one just completely uh, flopped on their face. And let's begin with that because uh, Caleb, it has to be said, this tournament has been a absolute catastrophe for the French. Oh my word. Where to begin? Is it Rabiot's mother attacking parents of other players? Is it Varane on Pavard? Is it Pogba crapping on Pavard? Is it Pavard crapping on Pogba? This was an implosion for the ages. And it's funny because we were, t- I, I forgot exactly what you're saying, but I feel like we were like, you know what? This France team, they finally seem to have like <laughs> pulled themselves together, right? Like there's, <laughs> there's no drama, right? Like they're like, no, there's, was, there's liberté, fraternité yeah. all over the place. No, but it was better than that. We were like, they're able to do this and bring in Benzema and, and there won't even be problems, right? Like that's how good it is. They could bring in blackmailer extraordinaire, right? And it's fine. And, you know, in all fairness, I don't think Benzema was responsible for any of this. In fact, Benzema was probably one of no, their best Benzema players No, Benzema just looked like tournament. he was lucky to be along for the ride and he actually delivered. Yeah, but wow, the fracture lines in this team honestly all revolve around Mbappe in a lot of ways. And I was talking with Nick about this the other day, but he both didn't deliver on the pitch and was causing problems even before the tournament off it by, you know, having beef with Giroud for not passing to him in a friendly. And this is, I think, one of the first times in his career, maybe, and I think, Nick, you were talking to me about this the other day, where, like, he's really suffered disappointment and where a lot of that disappointment is his own fault. And a lot of that, you know, issues start with him being bad for team chemistry and wanting to like run this team when it's not his role to yet. 
Yeah, I agree. And I feel I feel a little bad for him because I know that just because of his personality and because of um, his sort of situation on in, in global soccer, that he is going to take a lot of hate that I think could easily be directed toward Deschamps. Um, and, you know, he missed the what would have been a, a game prolonging penalty. Um, despite having an assist, he didn't really get on the ball that much. But again, I just don't think that this France team, the way they set up with basically three strikers, uh, was ever going to play to his strength. And the question then becomes, you know, should he have been dropped in favor of another attacking midfielder to push Griezmann up top to accommodate Benzema or something of the like? All in all, I just don't think that this three at the back formation that Deschamps was using really looked like it was going to fully click at any given time. Um, and at the end of the day, I mean, credit to Switzerland for knocking them out. Um, but it was a pretty disappointing finish. Uh, and it, it ruined what I think would have been a player of the tournament um, run for Paul Pogba as well. Oh my God. That is like the most tragic thing. And you can already find it on YouTube. People have like put together compilations of some of Pogba's passing from just this tournament, from just the four games that he was involved with. And oh my word, he would, this would have been like one of the greatest, if France had made it to the final, would have been one of the greatest international tournament performances of any midfielder perhaps ever. Because Pogba was on a mad one in this tournament. But uh, I want to toss it back to that game against Switzerland, Nathan. And I think you brought this up when you were kind of hinting that a lot of this is on Deschamps. And I would say that most of it, is on the, I think, tactical, or lack thereof, <laughs> nous of Didier Deschamps. And when that lineup came up, I sent, I remember I sent that lineup to you guys, and then the immediate, the, the thing I sent after was that just gif of Jordan Peele from Key and Peele just, like, sweating profusely. Because I was like, this is, like, it, there was very much a vibe to me where it was, like, the French thought they could just roll up in, like, any formation with any combination of players and win like they were already there and this was some serious like no tactics just vibes stuff from the french down to the fact that like they scrapped it all um at halftime when they were down one nil and then they went to this like kind of i don't even i hesitate to even call it a four two three one but i guess it was kind of like that there no one really had any positions uh freestyling it uh, it was it was just really a catastrophe on the tactics board from Deschamps, uh, down to like him trying to like replicate uh, the Matuidi role from the 2018 World Cup with Rabio, which like obviously was never going to work. Now French football is at kind of a crossroads because I think there was so much expectation on this team. They had the talent to win this tournament. They probably should have won this tournament. Uh, I think that was like the expectation from all of us, and they definitely had enough to do that. So now the question is, do you keep Deschamps? You know, he's done a lot of good work to foster a brotherhood. Do you go with someone like Zidane now? I don't think so right before a World Cup. I, I just think that's a little too risky. And maybe that depends on the calculation of whether you think that this group of players roughly can like pull themselves together, um, which I think they, they probably can. But I think bringing in a new coach now when the squad's not likely to change that much and like adding that as like another factor would, would just unsettle the team more. I don't think we've reached like full calamity yet. Um, and I, I think Zidane might, 
not be helpful in rectifying some of the fissures that have grown. We will move on from the French. We will save them for a later date. I'm sure more stuff is going to come out on their collapse. You know, as more and more days pass, we seem to get more and more information about what went wrong in that French camp. Um, but Nathan, let's talk about a team that you were very high on coming into this tournament. And we've already kind of touched on them a little bit when talking about Italy, but they're obviously out going out in the quarterfinals against the Italians. It is Belgium. Another chance. Mm, squandered isn't exactly, doesn't feel like the word to me, but let's go with that. Another chance squandered for this golden generation uh, under Roberto Martinez. What do you think went wrong with Belgium? Is it just the fact that you know they are getting a little bit up there in age? Is it kind of the tactical inflexibility from the 3-4-3 from Martinez. What do you think happened at this tournament for them? Obviously, injuries played a part as well. I think the biggest thing for them is that their back three, which had been a source of strength in their runs in 2016 and 2018, really underperformed. Like, I actually thought that in the game against Italy, Thomas Vermaelen was the best performer out of Alderweireld, Vermaelen, and Vertonghen. And that's pretty indicative of, I think, where this team is at. And, you know, it's weird because I feel like even though this golden generation is sort of ending or fading or faded, they still have plenty of attacking talent. Like Lukaku is in his prime and is a top three striker in the world. De Bruyne is a top five player in the world when he's healthy. And then players like Doku, um, who I thought had an excellent game against Italy, have are, are certainly like on the come up, as is Yuri Tielemans. But it's just that back three that, you know, just could not keep up with Italy. They were torn apart twice. Well, really, they were torn apart three times. Um, but uh, VAR intervened. So all in all, it's a disappointing tournament for Belgium, um, who I thought had some really good moments. Um, but they were just beaten by a better team um, in Italy and couldn't really make the difference. And going down two goals in the span of, what, like 13, 15 minutes is always going to doom you, even though they did pull one back. So Belgium's next task is to develop a, a young center back, I think, because they're the, the last generation of, of Belgian defenders, um, you know, Jason Denayer, uh, Dedrick Boyata, they don't look like they are ever going to reach the same heights that Alderweireld and Bertongen did. So that's going to be a, an area of concern for the Belgians as well. Yeah, I think, I think Belgium are kind of toasted because I look at the lineup they put out and I'm like, how would I improve it with the players that theoretically could be in the squad? And you have to say, like, okay, maybe you put in Eden Hazard for Doku, but I don't think Eden Hazard is ever going to regain the quality that he once had. So I think, who is that third attacking player? Is it another older attacking player like Mertens? Is it Carrasco in that role? And then, okay, maybe you can upgrade to Castagna over Munier right back. But I, I think the issue at the centre-backs is not going to change. It's not going to change before the World Cup, and it probably won't change, you know, in the next year or two either because I don't even know who the, like, youth centre-back talent of Belgium is. And as Nathan mentioned, you know, Denaire and Boyata are, you know, now solidly in their 20s and are both, you know, reasonable quality players um, in top five leagues but are not ever going to be, like, starters on a, you know, Champions League contender team. And so I think, I think they're just timed out. I don't think that they have the age and talent throughout the squad to, to get past, you know, the other teams they'll need to, like Italy. And it's unfortunate, um, but they're, they're definitely more of a middling 
quarterfinal type team now rather than a true contender. I think the injuries to De Bruyne and Hazard in this tournament are really unfortunate. I don't think we really got to see this Belgium team at their absolute best. You know, maybe that first half against Portugal was kind of them at their apex. But even then, you know, De Bruyne picks up the injury in the second half and they look like a completely different team in the latter stages of that game. An issue, I think, going forward for them is going to be their manager. You know, I imagine Martinez is going to stay there for much longer. It, I just don't know who's going to, like, be able to take this team forward or who's going to want to take this team forward like Caleb is. And you, like, you, like you both were saying, like, there's a lot of turnover that has to happen in the Belgium national team squad. And that's, like, a big job for for someone to take. And I don't, I don't think there's any, like, you know, big managerial prospects on the horizon to take this Belgium team forward. So um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, who they get and who they involve in sort of that, that search to kind of, I don't think, I think rebuild might be a stretch, but just kind of revitalize. I think the, the player who I would turn to first is Thierry Henry, who obviously has spent now two stints with Belgium in an assistant coaching manner and who didn't really look great as a head coach slash slash manager of a club team. But I wonder if his sort of, prowess as a player um, and experience with Belgium in the coaching setup could be um, he could be the kind of guy who they would look to next but you're right I think there isn't necessarily like a a marquee um, manager who would look to fill that spot well on the subject of managers let's move away from international football and talk a little bit about two big stories coming out of the Premier League this past week Caleb I know this one has fascinated you this first one Ex-Liverpool boss, Liverpool legend, some would say, uh, Rafa Benitez has joined Everton on a three-year contract, you know, following the whole debacle of Carlo Ancelotti leaving the club to rejoin Real Madrid. Caleb, why did you want to talk about this and what about this do you find so fascinating? You know, Rafa joining the other side of Merseyside. Well, I think obviously that's the the main points, Rafa joining the other side of Merseyside and also just, you know, having him be the manager to follow Carlo Ancelotti, having him take on an Everton team that he once called, you know, a small club. I think he's got a lot to prove to the fans that he actually, you know, like cares about Everton. But more so, I think this brings up the question of like, what do Everton view themselves as and what they're trying to do? Because they've spent a lot of money over the past several years, they've brought in a lot of, you know, international talent. They have a Brazil international on their team, which I think is pretty wild. Um, and yet they seem kind of mired in, you know, that eighth to 10th place. And they've never really had a season, you know, even like they've never had a season like West Ham had last year or a season like Leicester, where they kind of ascend above their perhaps natural station. Well, I think um, it was the one Roberto Martinez season in right. like 2014 and that was really it right but that was almost kind of like before this this current yeah yeah you know? definitely so I, I think it brings up an interesting like identity question for the club because i think everton are, are trying to grow my point is they're they're a club that's growing they're building a new stadium um they clearly have visions of grandeur and i think benitez is at least fits into that idea but i just am not convinced that everton will really be able to ever execute on, on that vision. I think it's incredibly high risk is the thing. Cause from, okay. From a Liverpool perspective, here's my thoughts about, you know, Rafa 
he will always be a special person for like Liverpool, not only the Liverpool Football Club, but also Liverpool, the area. You know, he's donated so much money to Liverpool charities, Liverpool Football Club charities, obviously a big uh, donor for the Hillsborough charity, um, been associated with that for many years. I think he's obviously delivered the best night, arguably the best night in Liverpool Football Club history uh, in Istanbul, delivered some of the best players that the club has ever seen, you know, the likes of Mascherano, Torres, Pepe Reina, um, Xabi Alonso. There's been enough separation now, and his legacy is always going to be firmly established as a Liverpool legend to where him joining Everton and his family still lives in Liverpool. Like his daughters are, you know, very much have grown up in Liverpool. Uh, his family has stayed there even when he's taken jobs in, you know, China or Napoli or Newcastle. So he's very much like has a very organic connection with Liverpool, the city. So him taking the job at Everton, yes, it will be weird to see him on the touchline at Goodison Park. But also like me knowing that this is probably like what is best for him, his career and his family. Like I fully accept that. And I'm very happy that he has this opportunity. I think the reason why it's super high risk is because from an Everton fan perspective, I'm not sure I'd be like super jazzed about seeing Benitez manage my club, you know, after like everything that he said in the past, you know, him being a Liverpool manager, him like looking down on Everton and it getting pretty nasty there, like from the period in between like 2004 to 2008 between Liverpool and Everton. And Caleb, like you said, like this team has designs of being a Premier League heavyweight in the next four to five years. And Benitez is someone who knows how to build projects, knows how to turn culture around, knows how to recruit really well and get players in that suit both the club and his system. But he's not going to get the time to like work on a project at Everton. In, in order to get the fans on side, he's going to need to be successful immediately. And I just don't know if that's going to be on the cards with the current makeup of this Everton team. Yeah, I agree. And I think Everton have some other things that are holding them back as well, like namely their stadium and their plans to build a new one. And they're always going to be in the shadow of the club next door. Yeah, I just think it's very hard. I think, look, Hamas is going to get sold um, like within the next couple of weeks is what they're saying. Um, Dominic Calvert-Lewin will probably end up going at some point in this next year as well, especially if he can replicate his last year in this coming year. I just don't really see an avenue for immediate success at all. And I think a lot of this stems back to their poor transfers, um, you know, basically with the Lukaku money, you know, um, or not the Lukaku money, but really in that 2015-16 season and beyond, they've spent quite poorly and part well, like of that Mishiri's has been bad luck. couple of transfer windows, like with Marco Silva and the like. Right, exactly. And yes, they've had some bad luck. Um, you know, Balassi, they signed him and he tore his ACL, um, like I think in a preseason game or in like the first or second weekend. Um, but, yeah, but Gabamon, um, you know, paying 40 mil for Gilfie Sigurdsson um, in the, I think, the summer of extreme hyperinflation. 50 mil. But 50 mil? Jesus yep. Christ. Yeah, so the point still stands. Um and yeah, I just don't know. I mean, I, I actually quite like Benitez. He was a name that was like sort of loosely thrown around for the Arsenal job last or two years ago. Um, but I just don't know if it's going to be the right place or the right time for him. All right. And before we wrap up, we do want to touch on 
Caleb Rhodes getting the Spurs managerial appointment. Uh, spot on, Caleb. After a tumultuous 72 days without a manager, names such as Gattuso, Pochettino, Conte, Graham Potter, Eric Tenahog, Hansi Flick, um, I think even the three of us were considered to be taking over the job at Tottenham. They have yep. settled on the former Wolves manager, Nuno Espirito Santo, someone who new director of football, Fabio Paratici, has apparently wanted for a long time, was in contention to join Juventus uh, last season before Andrea Pirlo. I'm a little bit torn on this ap- appointment because I think it has a lot of positive aspects to it, but I also think you can look at this and think it's pretty underwhelming at the same time. I mean, you have to think it's underwhelming when you get your, you know, 30th choice candidate for the job. And <laughs> no, I, I mean, like that, that just has to be a fact, right? Like there's a reason he wasn't the first person they went to two and a half months ago. Um, but I think, you know, it's just important that they have a manager now. Nuno's not the you know, sexiest manager around, but, you know, I, I think there's still a lot of questions about this Spurs team, whether Harry Kane stays or goes, but They've solved one problem, which is that they have a guy who's going to be on the touchline every week. And there are definitely worse people for the job than Nuno, who did a good job for a few years at Wolves. Um, and it was definitely time for him to move on from there. So I'm glad to see that this Spurs story can kind of start to, to be resolved as we get, you know, seven or eight weeks from the beginning of the next season. So I think... Again, I think this is an underwhelming appointment that somehow still seems very on brand. Like he was sort of the best of the rest in terms of available managers. But on the other hand, he is notoriously defensive as a coach. Um, and on the yeah, other definitely hand, does not fit the profile that Daniel Levy set out in that statement to the fans of wanting to play high intensity, high attacking soccer. Yeah, and on the other hand, you know, there are reports from The Guardian this morning that Harry Kane's relationship with the club is irrevocably fractured um and you can sort of see it in harry kane's statement i'm trying to i'm trying to pull it up right now um his statement on the appointment of uh this new manager let me try i'm just trying to find the actual statement so i can uh okay here it is whenever a new manager comes in i guess there's a level of excitement around the club oh boy nino was a great manager and did a great job at wolves got them playing a really good way I'm sure we'll be in contact after the tournament, which I know there's a lot of sort of like generic, um, you know, force-fed PR lines in there. But just the phrase, I guess there's a level of excitement around the club, doesn't exactly scream like a ringing endorsement of a player who wants to stay. And apparently Kane and Levy aren't even on speaking terms um, either. So that is clearly the next big obstacle for this club to sort out. Um, And... I just am not entirely sold on, you know, as the person who is going to get this team to perform above the sum of their parts, like someone like Pochettino did. So I think there's a couple of ways you can look at this. Yes, I think it is very underwhelming, especially given the names that they were linked with and particularly Antonio Conte and the possibility of bringing back Pochettino. I think Nuno is someone who is very good at team building, team chemistry, I think you can see it like whenever his Wolves team scored a goal, like he would get all of his staff together for like a little like celebratory huddle. That was always like a very wholesome thing. And I think it went a long way to like making him uh, uh, kind of the guy 
at a club like Wolves that has a lot of connections in a lot of different places. So I think in that respect, like Nuno will be very good for the vibe at Tottenham. Like, is it a huge departure from Jose Mourinho? Not really. Like, you can't really say that it is. Like, they, they still play, you know, perhaps like a little bit too much of a conservative style of soccer for, I think, what Spurs fans will be wanting. You know, maybe there is something that Nuno can tap into in order to get Tottenham to play like his Valencia teams of the past, where like they were the third highest scoring team in La Liga, uh, like second only to Barcelona and Madrid. But I'm not even sure he's going to be able to do that if, you know, he can't get Harry Kane onside, if they can't get the transfers that they want to through the door. I think there's a lot on the shoulders of Paratici to make sure this thing works out in his first season at Tottenham. And I think there's still a lot of a lot of questions about the future of this team, even with someone like Nuno now at the forefront. Well, <laughs> well, <laughs> we might need to point someone new to the show to help us conclude here because uh, in the midst of me trying to make my point at Nuno, it seems that Nathan has disappeared. Nathan uh, has left the chat. Has left the chat. Oh, he literally just fully disappeared from the screen. <laughs> He was hanging on for a moment, but... Uh, well, we have to end the show because uh, yeah. I think both Caleb and I have to run. So we're just going to, I guess, uh, you, you know, we're looking forward to the semifinals of the Euros. <laughs> we will come back to you probably before the final. Uh, we're going to break down the two semifinal games. We're going to discuss, you know, whatever the potential matchup is in the final. And then afterwards, we'll get on to the customary. Uh, we'll probably give our team of the tournament as well. We'll yeah. probably talk about the Copa America semifinals mm, and finals. For sure. And we're going to start probably doing the the transfer rumor mill, the off-season storylines, you know, get fully kicking on that. We didn't even talk about Jaden Sancho to Manchester United today. That's how busy yeah. we've been. For another time, for another time. Yeah. So anyways, with that being said, uh, if you want to become the new third member of Corner Kick Media, I guess submit your application to uh, officialcornerkick at gmail.com. But until then, I've been Nick Avinded. Nathan Strauss. Caleb Rhodes. <laughs> and uh, we will see you all next time and hopefully we'll have found <laughs> we'll hopefully we'll have found Nathan by then. <laughs> <laughs>